Chapter 47 of Science in Short Chapters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Hirsch. Science in Short Chapters by W. Mathieu Williams. Chapter 47 Domestic Ventilation. A lesson from the coal pits. We require in our houses an artificial temperate climate which shall be uniform throughout, and at the same time we need a gentle movement of air that shall supply the requirements of respiration without any gusts or draughts or alternations of temperature. Everybody will admit that these are fundamental desiderata but whoever does so becomes thereby a denouncer of open great fireplaces and of every system of heating which is dependent on any kind of stoves with fuel burning in the rooms that are to be inhabited all such devices concentrate the heat in one part of each room and demand the admission of cold air for some other part or parts thereby violating the primary condition of uniform temperature. The usual preceding effects especially outrageous violation of this, as I showed in the last chapter. I might have added domestic cleanliness among the desiderata, but in the matter of fireplaces, the true-born Briton, in spite of his fastidiousness in respect to shirt-collars, etc., is a devoted worshipper of dirt. No matter how elegant his drawing-room, he must defile it with a coal-scuttle, with dirty coals, poker, shovel, and tongs, dirty ash-pit, dirty cinders, ashes, and dust, and he must amuse himself by doing the dirty work of a stoker towards his cheerful, companionable, pokeable, open fire. It is evident that, in order to completely fulfill the first-named requirements, we must, in winter, supply our model residence with fresh artificially warmed air, and in summer with fresh cool air. How is this to be done? An approach to a practical solution is afforded by examining what is actually done under circumstances where the ventilation problem presents the greatest possible difficulties, and where, nevertheless, these difficulties have been effectually overcome. Such a case is presented by a deep coal mine. Here we have a little working world, inhabited by men and horses, deep in the bowels of the earth, far away from the air that must be supplied in sufficient quantities, not only to overcome the vitiation due to their own breathing, but also to sweep out the deadly gaseous emanations from the coal itself. Imagine your dwelling-house buried a quarter of a mile of perpendicular depth below the surface of the earth, and its walls giving off suffocating and explosive gases in such quantities that steady and abundant ventilation shall be a matter of life or death. 
and that in spite of this it is made so far habitable that men who spend half their days there retain robust health and live to green old age, and that horses, after remaining there day and night for many months, actually improve in condition. Imagine further that the house thus ventilated has some hundreds of small, very low-roofed rooms, and a system of passages or corridors within united length of many miles, and that its inhabitants count by the hundreds. Such dwellings being thus ventilated and rendered habitable for man and beast, it is idle to dispute the practical possibility of supplying fresh air of any given temperature to a mere box of brick or stone standing in the midst of the atmosphere and containing but a few passages and apartments. The problem is solved in the coal pit by simply and skillfully controlling and directing the natural movements of unequally heated volumes of air. Complex mechanical devices for forcing the ventilation by means of gigantic fan wheels, etc., or by steam jets have been tried and are now generally abandoned. An inlet and an outlet are provided, and no air is allowed to pass inward or outward by any other course than that which has been prearranged for the purposes of efficient ventilation. I place special emphasis on this condition, believing that its systematic violation is the primary cause of the bungling muddle of our domestic ventilation. Let us suppose that we're going to open a coal pit to mine coal on a certain estate. We first ascertain the dip of the seam, or its deviation from horizontality, and then start at the lowest part, not, as some suppose, at that part nearest to the surface. The reason for this is obvious on a little reflection. For if we began at the shallowest part of an ordinary water-bearing stratum, we should have to drive down under water. But by beginning at the lowest part and driving upwards, we can at once form a sump, or bottom receptacle, to receive the drainage, and from which the accumulated water may be pumped. This, however, is only by the way and not directly connected with our main subject, the ventilation. In order to secure this, the modern practice is to sink two pits, a pair, as they are called, side by side, at any convenient distance from each other. If they are deep, it becomes necessary to commence ventilation of the mere shafts themselves in the course of sinking. This is done by driving an airway, a horizontal tunnel from one to the other, and then establishing an upcast in one of them by simply lighting a fire there. This destroys the balance between the two communicating columns of air. The cooler column in the shaft without a fire, being heavier, falls against the lighter column and pushes it up, 
just as the air is pushed up one leg of a U-tube when we pour water down the other. Even in this preliminary work, if the pits are so deep that more than one airway is driven, it is necessary to stop the upper ways and leave only the lowest open, in order that the ventilation shall not take a short and useless cut, as it does up our fireplace openings. Let us now suppose that the pair of pits are sunk down to the seam, with a further extension below to form the water sump. There are two chief modes of working a coal seam, the pillar and stall, and the long wall, or more modern system. For present illustration, I select the latter as the simplest in respect to ventilation. This method, as ordinarily worked, consists essentially in first driving roads through the coal, from the pits to the outer boundary of the area to be worked, then cutting a crossroad that shall connect these, thereby exposing a long wall of coal, which, in working, is gradually cut away towards the pits, the roof remaining behind being allowed to fall in. Let us begin to do this by driving, first of all, two main roads, one from each pit. It is evident that as we proceed in such burrowing, we shall presently find ourselves in a cul-de-sac so far away from the outer air that suffocation is threatened. This will be equally the case with both roads. Let us now drive a cross-cut from the end of each main road and thus establish a communication from the downcast shaft through its road, then through the drift to the upcast road and pit. But in order that the air shall take this roundabout course, we must close the direct drift that we previously made between the two shafts, or it will proceed by that shorter and easier course. Now we shall have air throughout both our main roads, and we may drive on further, until we are again stopped by approximate suffocation. When this occurs, we make another cross-cut. But in order that it may act, we must stop the first one. So we go on until we reach the working, and then the long wall itself becomes the cross-communication. And through this working gallery the air sweeps freely and effectually. In the above I have only considered the simplest possible elements of the problem. The practical coal pit in full working has a multitude of intervening passages and splits, where the main current from the downcast is divided in order to proceed through the various streets and lanes of the subterranean town as may be required and these divided currents are finally reunited ere they reach the upcast shaft, which casts them all out into the upper air. In a colliery worked on the pillar and stall system, i.e. by taking out the coal so as to leave a series of square chambers with pillars of coal in the middle to support the roof, the windings of the air between the multitude of passages is curiously complex, and its absolute obedience to the commands of the mining engineer 
proves how completely the most difficult problems of ventilation may be solved when ignorance and prejudice are not permitted to bar the progress of the practical applications of simple scientific principles. Here, the necessity of closing all false outlets is strikingly demonstrated by the mechanism and working of the stoppings, or partitions that close all unrequired openings. The air in many pits has to travel several miles in order to get from the downcast to the upcast shaft, though they may be but a dozen yards apart. Formerly the same shaft served both for up and downcast by making a wooden division, a bratisse, down the middle. This is now prohibited on account of serious accidents that have been caused by the fracture of the bratisse. But it would not do to carry the coal from the workings to the pit by these sinuous air courses. What then is done? A direct road is made for the coal, but if it were left open, the air would choose it. This is prevented by an arrangement similar to that of canal locks. Valve doors or stoppings are arranged in pairs, and when the hurrier arrives with his corvée, a pit carriage, one door is opened, and the other remaining shut. Then the corvée is hurried into the space between the doors, and the entry door is closed. Now the exit door is open, and thus no continuous opening is ever permitted. Only one such opening would derange the ventilation of the whole pit, or of that portion fed by the split thus allowed to escape. It would, in fact, correspond to the action of our open fireplaces in rendering effective ventilation impossible. The following, from the report of the Lord's Committee on Accidents in Coal Mines, 1849, illustrates the magnitude of the ventilation arrangements then at work. In the Hetton Colliery, there were two downcast shafts and one upcast the former about 12 feet and the latter 14 feet diameter. There were three furnaces at the bottom of the upcast, each about 9 feet wide with about 4 feet length of grate bars. The depth of the upcast and one downcast, 900 feet, and of the other downcast, 1,056 feet. The quantity of air introduced by the action of these furnaces was 168,560 cubic feet per minute, at a cost of about 8 tons of coal per day. The rate of motion of the air was 1,097 feet per minute, above 12 miles per hour. This whole current was divided by splitting into 16 currents of about 11,000 cubic feet each per minute, having, on an average, a course of four and one quarter miles each. This distance was, however, very irregular, the greatest length, of course, being nine and one-tenth miles, total length 70 miles. Thus, 168,560 cubic feet of air 
were driven through these great distances at a rate of 12 miles per hour and a cost of 8 tons of coal per day. All these magnitudes are greatly increased in coal mines of the present time. As much as 250,000 cubic feet of air per minute are now passed through the shafts of one mine. The problem of domestic ventilation, as compared with coal pit ventilation, involves an additional requirement, that of warming, but this does not at all increase the difficulty, and I even go so far as to believe that cooling in summer may be added to warming in winter by one and the same ventilating arrangement. As I am not a builder and claim no patent rights, the following must be regarded as a general indication, not as a working specification, of my scheme for domestic ventilation and the regulation of home climate. The model house must have an upcast shaft, placed as nearly in the middle of the building as possible, with which every room must communicate, either by a direct opening or through a lateral shaft. An ordinary chimney built in the usual manner is all that is required to form such a main shaft. There must be no stoves nor any fireplaces in any room excepting the kitchen, of which anon. All the windows must be made to fit closely, as nearly airtight as possible. No downcast shaft is required the pressure of the surrounding outer atmosphere being sufficient. Outside of the house, or on the ground floor, on the north side if possible, should be a chamber heated by flues, hot air, steam, a suitable stove, or water pipes, and with one adjustable opening communicating with the outer fresh air, and another on the opposite side connected by a shaft or airway with the hall of the ground floor and the general staircase. Each room to have an opening at its upper part communicating with the chimney, like an Arnott's ventilator, and capable of adjustment as regards area of aperture, and other openings of corresponding or excessive combined area leading from the hall or staircase to the lower part of the room. These may be covered with perforated zinc or wire gauze, so that the air may enter in a gentle, broken stream. All the outer house doors must be double, i.e. with a porch or vestibule, and only one of each pair of doors opened at once. These should be well fitted, and the staircase airtight. The kitchen to communicate with the rest of the house by similar double doors, and the kitchen fire to communicate directly with the upcast shaft or chimney by as small a stovepipe as practicable. The kitchen fire will thus start the upcast and commence the draft of air from the warm chamber through the house towards the several openings into the shaft. In cold weather, this upcast action will be greatly reinforced and maintained by the general warmth of all the air in the house, 
which itself will bodily become an upcast shaft immediately the inner temperature exceeds that of the air outside. But the upcast of warm air can only take place by the admission of fresh air through the heating chamber, thence to the hall and staircase, and thence onward through the rooms into the final shaft or chimney, the openings into and out of the rooms being adjustable. They may be so regulated that each shall receive an equal share of fresh warm air, or, if desired, the bedroom chimney valves may be closed in the daytime, and thus the heat economized by being used only for the day rooms, or, vice versa, the communication between the upcast shaft and the lower rooms may be closed in the evening and thus all the warm air be turned into the bedrooms at bedtime. If the area of the entrance apertures of the rooms exceeds that of the outlet, only the latter need be adjusted. The room doors may, in fact, be left wide open without any possibility of draft beyond the ventilation current, which is limited by the dimension of the opening from the room into the shaft or chimney. So far, for wintertime when the ventilation problem is the easiest, because then the excess of inner warmth converts the whole house into an upcast shaft, and the whole outer atmosphere becomes a downcast. In the summertime, the kitchen fire would probably be insufficient to secure a sufficiently active upcast. To help this, there should be in one of the upper rooms, say an attic, an opening into the chimney secured by a small, well-fitting door, and altogether enclosed within the chimney a small, automatic, slow-combustion stove, of which many were exhibited in South Kensington, that require feeding but once in twenty-four hours or a large gas burner. The heating chamber below must now be converted into a cooling chamber by an arrangement of wet cloths, presently to be described, so that all the air entering the house shall be reduced in temperature. Or the winter course of ventilation may be reversed by building a special shaft connected with the kitchen fire, which in this case must not communicate with the house shaft. This special shaft may thus be made an upcast, and the rooms supplied with air from above down the house shaft, through the rooms, and out the kitchen via the winter heating chamber, which now has its communication with the outside air closed. Reverting to the first name method, which I think is better than the second, besides being less expensive, I must say a few concluding words on an important supplementary advantage, which is obtainable wherever all the air entering the house passes through one opening, completely under control, like that of our heating chamber. The great evil of our town atmosphere is its dirtiness. In the winter, it is polluted with soot particles. In the dry summer weather, the traffic and the wind stir up and mix with it particles of dust, having a composition 
that is better ignored when we consider the quantity of horse dung that is dried and pulverized on our roadways. All the dust that falls on our books and furniture was first suspended in the air we breathe inside our rooms. Can we get rid of any practically important portion of this? I'm able to answer this question not merely on theoretical grounds, but as a result of practical experiments described in the following chapter, in which is reprinted a paper I read at the Society of Arts, March 19, 1879, recommending the enclosure of London backyards with a roofing of wall canvas, or paper hangers canvas, so as to form cheap conservatories. This canvas, which costs about three pence per square yard, is a kind of coarse, strong, fluffy gauze, admitting light and air, but acting very effectively as an air filter, by catching and stopping the particles of soot and dust that are so fatal to urban vegetation. I propose, therefore, that this well-tried device should be applied at the entrance aperture of our heating chamber, that the screens shall be well wetted in the summer in order to obtain the cooling effect of evaporation, and in the winter shall be either wet or dry, as may be found desirable. The Parliament House experiments prove that they are good filters when wetted, and mine that they act similarly when dry. By thus applying the principles of colliery ventilation to a specially constructed house, we may, I believe, obtain a perfectly controllable indoor climate, with a range of variation not exceeding four or five degrees between the warmest and the coldest part of the house, or eight or nine degrees between summer and winter, and this may be combined with an abundant supply of fresh air everywhere, all filtered from the grosser portions of its irritant dust, which is positively poisonous to delicate lungs, and damaging to all. The cost of fuel would be far less than with existing arrangements, and the labor of attending to one or two fires and the valves would also be less than that now required in the carrying of coal scuttles, the removal of ashes, the cleaning of fireplaces, and the curtains and furniture they befoul by their escaping dust and smoke. It is obvious that such a system of ventilation may even be applied to existing houses by mending the ill-fitting windows, shutting up the existing fire holes, and using the chimneys as upcast shafts in the manner above described. This may be done in the winter, when the problem is easiest, and the demand for artificial climate the most urgent. But I question the possibility of summer ventilation and tempering of climate in anything short of a specially built house or a materially altered existing dwelling. There are doubtless some exceptions to this, where the house happens to be specially suitable and easily adapted, 
but in ordinary houses we must be content with the ordinary devices of summer ventilation by doors and windows plus the upper openings of the rooms into the chimneys expanded to their full capacity and thus doing even in summer far better ventilating work than the existing fire holes opening in the wrong place i thus expound my own scheme not because i believe it to be perfect but on the contrary as a suggestive project to be practically amended and adapted by others better able than myself to carry out the details the feature that i think is novel and important is that of consciously and avowedly applying to domestic ventilation the principles that have been so successfully carried out in the far more difficult problem of subterranean ventilation the dishonesty of the majority of the modern builders of suburban villa residences is favorable to this and other similar radical household reforms as thousands of these wretched tenements must sooner or later be pulled down or will all come down together without any pulling the next time we experience one of those earthquake tremors which visit england about once in a century end of chapter forty seven Recording by Tom Hirsch.